haven't scared y'all permanently, but we'll be here again next week if you want to join us. Yeah. I'll be here. So I want to say hi to everybody that's in this room and everybody joining us at all of our campuses, people tuning in online. So glad you're here. I want to talk to you about the day when Jesus came to the Bay Area and met a man who is kind of the poster boy for Silicon Valley. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three write about this incident. And we know from putting their stories together that this man was wealthy. He was very wealthy. He was also young. He also occupied a position of authority. So he came to be known to history as the rich young ruler. And to begin with, you need to understand he had his life together. He had the life everybody wants. Most people who came to Jesus would come out of neediness. Uh, beggars, the lame, the blind, uh, lepers and so. But not our boy. Our boy had his stuff together. So when he comes to Jesus, you wonder, what does he want? And you can imagine Jesus sizing him up. Ruler means he's educated. He has a Stanford MBA. Harvard was his backup school. Like other rich young rulers, he shops online at Everlane, gets nanopuff vests from the vending machine at SFO, gets his sneakers from Allbirds, checks his Apple Watch. He and his wife drive his and her Teslas so that they can not only move fast, but help save the planet. They're a little concerned for Elon Musk these days. He wears clothes that make him look like he might be going to climb Mount Everest, even when he's going into the office. His clothes are a signal. I will not try too hard to impress you by how expensive my clothes are, but I will wear my clothes to signal my cool habits and hobbies on the weekend. By the way, if you're a little lost right now, if you wear suits from Brooks Brothers and fine Italian shoes and a Rolex watch and drive a Jaguar and golf on the weekend, you're a rich old ruler. <laughs> this guy's home is so smart that it has its own IQ. Preheated floors, preheated towel racks, pre-guiding coffee beans, pre-flushing toilets. He has a personal artificial intelligent robot that babysits his kids for him. His sub-zero refrigerator has an internal camera that texts needed grocery items to his personal shopper. He eats soylent to move fast. He gets the best seats at Coachella. His children learn coding in Mandarin at the Oprah Winfrey Preschool for Elite Children. His wife is the CEO of her own company that produces organic smart yoga mats made by empowered vegetarian Tibetan dropouts. She is in such amazing shape that the only time she goes into child pose during yoga is to actually deliver a child after which she finishes her routine. He is heavily invested in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, is launching his own initial coin offering in a matter of weeks. He is a techie turned entrepreneurial founder of a get big fast startup that has overnight achieved unicorn status. He works out at Equinox with a personal trainer. He has designer mental health apps so that he can center and meditate. His presence on Instagram and Twitter is like a giant follow me sign and people follow him in droves. And you need to know this about our boy. He has a heart. He doesn't just want to be rich. He wants to be good. He wants to help the planet. He wants to do no harm. He's kind of haunted by this. So when he hears that Jesus has come to town, he seeks him out. He's got a question he's been waiting to ask somebody, dying to ask him. Jesus is the guy. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him 
and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This young man falls on his knees. Now, in that culture, that would be an expression of deep humility and reverence. In Silicon Valley, that would mean you go to his office instead of having him come to your office or meet a bucks or something. He addresses him with great deference, not just teacher, but good teacher, person of esteemed character. So honored you'd meet with me. Won't take up much of your time. The idea in his mind in this story is he's already a really good person who wants to become an even better person, so he'll talk with another recognized expert on the subject. It would be like Bill Gates going to Warren Buffett, asking, how can I get even better with money? Or Steph Curry going to Michael Jordan, how can I shoot even better? Or Taylor Swift going to Beyonce, how can I sing even more beautifully about my ex-boyfriends who trash me? <laughs> Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Jesus is a little scratchy here. Jesus has an edge to him. Jesus is not wearing his Mr. Rogers, won't you be my neighbor's sweater. And the disciples are a little surprised by this. They're a not-for-profit. We're told in Luke 8, they're supported by the funds of a few women who travel with them. Jesus is their fundraiser-in-chief. And this rich young ruler is a potential big donor. Apparently, Jesus missed the class on donor management in Messiah school. Jesus is signaling to the rich young ruler, this will not be the conversation you thought it was going to be. I will not be manipulated by flattery to collude in mutual goodness-achieving self-congratulations. Then, in random order, Jesus reviews those of the Ten Commandments that relate to other people. You know the commandments, and the man does. Do not murder. Don't commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And the rich young ruler is saying to himself, no murder, check. No adultery, check. No stealing, check. Perjury, fraud. Mom and dad, think we're good. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Notice, this time he doesn't call him good teacher, just teacher. Our boy is a quick learner. Remember, Harvard was his backup school. And, and you should know, he's quite sincere about this. He's not a hypocrite. He's not posing. He prides himself on his character, his integrity. Maybe he's feeling pretty good about this. I'm doing okay. Maybe he's a tiny bit disappointed. I thought maybe this rabbi would say something I'd never heard before. And then the text says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Such a poignant phrase. What an amazing man Jesus must have been. He doesn't sneer at this man's claims. Jesus is poor, and this guy is rich, and Jesus loves him. I can get so easily judgmental about money. Kind of funny. If I'm driving around and I see somebody with a car much less expensive than mine, I can just have the automatic thought, well, they probably don't function at a real high level like me. If they're driving a much more expensive car than mine, I can think, well, that person's probably kind of greedy. <laughs> Jesus was poor. This guy's rich. Jesus loves him. The text doesn't say why. I bet Jesus loved the guy's heart. I bet he loved the guy's courage, the way he would just open himself wide up to Jesus like this. I think maybe he loved the guy's potential. 
the desire this rich young ruler had to make a difference, to follow God, to touch the world, to do good. And I want to say to you, every one of you, everybody in the Bay Area, rich or poor, young or old, ruler or ruled over, I think if Jesus talked with you today and you asked him the honest question of your heart, I think he would look at you and love you. I think when Jesus looks up and down the Bay Area, and not just at churches, at all the people and all the languages, and the startups and restaurants and clubs and bars, and all the dreams and confusion, I think his heart is just full of love. I think this is not widely known about him. Now, most important, Mark tells us this because what Jesus is about to say to the rich young ruler and you and me, he will say out of love. They will be hard words. Our boy does not want to hear them. So they sound almost like an afterthought. They remind me very much of an old television detective. None of you will be old enough to remember this guy, but his name was Lieutenant Columbo. And he was this great, apparently bumbling uh, detective, quite brilliant though. He had a conversational style for getting at the truth that was so unbelievably disarming that I kid you not, an article in the American Bar Association Journal a few years ago said the best way to interrogate subjects to get the truth is to think Columbo. Uh, it said he had mastered the skill of deploying discrepancies. I love that phrase, deploying discrepancies in what the other person had said. It would look as though the conversation was over and Lieutenant Colombo had been fooled and he would be almost to the door. And then he'd turn and say very casually, as if he'd almost forgotten it, uh, just one more thing, just one more thing. And, and that'd be the hook. That'd be the turning point. That would reveal the discrepancy. And then the guilt would just come pouring out. That would be the question that would let you know the lieutenant was on to you the whole time. He does not look like much in that rumpled trench coat taking on the form of a man and being made in the likeness of a servant. But you cannot pull the wool over those eyes. Over, actually, over that eye. Literally, Peter Falk, the guy that played Columbo, had a glass eye. And he's kind of a character. He's a good athlete. In high school, he was playing basketball one time, told the story about himself. And the ref made a terrible call. And Peter Falk pulled out his glass eye and handed it to the ref and said, you need this more than I do. <laughs> Very hard to pull the wool over that eye. Teacher. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Yeah. Okay. Nice going. Thanks for coming. Uh, just one more thing. One thing you lack. Just one. So fascinating. Jesus locates this wealthy, powerful, prime of his life young man's problem as a lack of something. Not that he had too much. He had a deficit. He was somehow impoverished. He had a big hole somewhere. And this had to intrigue this young man. He knew he had money, power, youth, and this would bring a boatload of other goods. It always does. Honor, respect, admiration, pleasure, education, opportunities, experience, resume, networks. What do I lack? He wonders. Yeah, I felt something was missing from my charmed life. 
Maybe no, I'll find out. And everybody waits with bated breath. Jesus has this rich young ruler's attention now for sure. And then Jesus doesn't actually name what that lack was directly. Jesus instead gives him a command. Actually, four commands. Go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. Go, sell, give, follow. Four little verbs that would haunt that man to go, sell, give, follow. Now, if you've read much about Jesus, uh, you may recognize this somewhat unique. Normally, Jesus just says, follow me. He calls James and John from the fishing boat, follow me. He goes to Peter and Andrew, just follow me. He goes to Matthew, who's a tax collector, follow me. Here, follow me is command number four. Follows three other commands. How come? Well, it's because you have to get rid of your old master before you can follow your new one. It's the way having a master works. You only have one. And Jesus is pretty good at recognizing the presence of a rival to his father. See, this was the great discrepancy. The rich young ruler wanted to inherit eternal life. He wanted to be good. We all do. But he wanted to be a rich young ruler more. That's what he really wanted. And for who knows how long he stands there. You know, he came for just little spiritual advice. Just one really good guy conferring with another really good guy on how to get even better. And he's confronted with the reality that God is not really his God at all. Not really. And that he really worships money and power. Success. Will he surrender to Jesus? Will he abandon himself? Will he really fall to his knees? And he turns around and he walks away. He will not follow. He will not go. He will not sell. He will not give. Nobody saw. This is a tragedy. This is a train wreck. And everybody's stunned. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, interesting, this is the only time, this time of great confusion, where Jesus calls his disciples children. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With people it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The disciples are amazed because they hold on to quite a common idea that wealth must surely be a sign of God's blessing. And this teacher teaching keeps recurring over the centuries. 
friend of mine named Grant Wacker is a historian at Duke University. He chaired a dissertation done by a woman named Kate Bowler. It's the first uh, formal academic study of the history of what is sometimes called the prosperity gospel. Uh, she turned it into a wonderful book called Blessed. But the idea of the prosperity gospel is that since sickness is bad, and it is, and since poverty is bad, and it is, then health and wealth must be a sign of God's favor, and they must be your divine right if you're a child of God, and there must be an unfailing formula, so as long as you believe and declare and confess rightly, they will be yours, and if you lack them, then you must not be doing faith right. In, in this line of thinking, giving often becomes just a way to get more because really, underneath it all, it's just about getting. It's just health and wealth and prosperity and so. Now, this passage about the rich young ruler does not get preached on very often in churches that proclaim a prosperity gospel. Health and wealth can be yours. Jesus' teaching on this stunned the disciples. And Peter, this is vintage Peter, if you know much about him, Peter wants to make sure that Jesus recognizes how much Peter has sacrificed to follow Jesus. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or field for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecution, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first, rich young ruler, will be last, and the last first. This is life in the kingdom now. Something unprecedented is happening with Jesus and his little community. In the ancient world, very different than ours, religion was a tribal activity. It's not so much something you chose or something you believed. You were born into it. You were automatically belonged to the religion of your family, of your tribe, of your city. Now, to follow Jesus then meant saying no to every other god. And very often, that meant that you would be cut off from your family. It was an agrarian economy, so no land for you, no inheritance, no 401k. With following Jesus came persecution. But then there's this new community that's called the church, and this is us, and these people that are incredibly generous. And they didn't regard their stuff as their stuff. They were generous to their relatives, but they were generous to their non-relatives. They were generous to their friends, but they were generous to their enemies. And not only that, there's, there's another dimension to this new community. It was extraordinary generosity. So you come into it, and, and people would just share stuff together. Another change in this community that would be relevant to the rich young rulers of the world. Um, Jesus uh, has a list of what you give up and then what you get back. And you'll notice one item is missing. Take a look real closely. Jesus says, here's what you give up. Seven items. Anybody who has left home, brother, sisters, mother, father, children, fields, then we'll get back. But now he lists only six items. Receive home, brother, sisters, mother, children, fields. What's missing? Fathers. Why? Because, according to Jesus, fathers are uniquely irreplaceable and valued. Mothers are nice, but they come and go. Revere your dad. Give gifts to your dad. Honor your dad above all. Right? Not exactly. 
The idea is profound. It's a, it's a radical one. In the ancient world, it was the father. In Rome, in Latin, it was called the pater familia, that held all authority, that held all power, who made the call. Now, in the new community of the church, we have one father. See, That's why Jesus does not list the word father in that second list, because we all have the same father. We have one ruler. We have one authority before whom we all bend the knee. No more rich, young rulers. That's The pursuit of that is not what this new community... Never been a community like this. We're just a family now. Young, old, rich, poor, powerful, weak, healthy, sick, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. So again, how do we apply this? Um, Historically in the church, people often have been troubled by this story and often tried to soften it. One way, in the early days of the church, of course, there were no printing presses. Scribes had to hand copy Uh, manuscripts of the Bible. And this story, an interesting error crept in. Uh, In one ancient manuscript, some scribe added a phrase to what Jesus actually said, changed it to as if Jesus had said, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Some scribe apparently thought Jesus couldn't have meant how hard it is for the rich to enter. So he just added a little explanatory gloss for those who trust in riches. Because of course, I can just say, I don't trust in riches. But that's not what the man said. Uh, another way people have softened it, there's an old story when Jesus says how oh, it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. There was an old, old, old story that Jerusalem had a gate that was actually called the needle's eye. And it was kind of had a low entry. So a camel could get through it, but it would have to get down on its knees and take its burden off its back. So it's like that's kind of a picture of what it means to go through the needle's eye. There's actually a reference to that needle's eye gate that goes back as far as Shakespeare, Richard III. But that's not what Jesus said. He's talking deliberately about an impossibility. It's easier for a Ferrari to go through an ATM deposit slot. It's the idea. The point is not that it's hard. The point is that it's impossible for people. The only way is surrender. God, this is not mine. God, you must do what I cannot. I will put this on the altar. Now, most of us are not called by Jesus to give away everything. In his own day, they weren't. Zacchaeus, quite a wealthy guy, didn't give away everything. Nicodemus, another wealthy guy, didn't give away everything. Here's what we are all called to. Surrender our lives and our will and our resources and our money to God. And the most tangible expression of this, of course, of course, is to give, to become a giving person, to give systematically, to give joyfully, to give generously, to give willingly, to ask God, God, help me to give. God, help me to want to give. If you've been fuzzy about your giving, you know, just not re- get out of fuzzy. Get real clear. What do you intend to give? If you don't have a budget and your finances are kind of undisciplined, and I know there can be so much shame around this topic, God does not want you to live in shame. Get help. Get a budget. If you wrestle with impulse spending, uh, go online and just uh, uh, use technology for this. Make the first financial transaction of every month, what you give to God. We're looking this month at how do we be a community of people together who follow Jesus. We looked at belonging, and we looked last week at serving, and now being a community of generosity. And I know how we live in the rich young ruler capital of the world from this day forward. What does it mean not to regard what's mine as mine? We learned this so early. 
When our kids were small, I took one of them to McDonald's and they got a meal that some marketing genius in a fit of brilliance called a Happy Meal. Just this one purchase, some food and a toy, and you can be happy. I was being healthy. I was eating a salad. And that bag of hot steaming french fries was sitting there. And I knew that a french fry could make me happy too. So I reached over for one, only one, just one small french fry. And my child's little hand slapped me. And my child said, those are mine. <laughs> Where do they get that? I said, honey, who do you think it is that goes to work every day? slaves away at that job in order to bring home the money earned through that income to dress you in those clothes that you're wearing and to drive you in that little car that we came here in and to buy those golden french fries that you are eating now. Nothing that you think is yours is really yours, you greedy french fry hoarding little twerp. <laughs> we didn't go to McDonald's again for a long time after that. But there's just something we learned real early on to say to God, mine. Nothing's mine. I brought nothing into this world. I will take nothing out of this world. Maybe today is the day you surrender your resources to God. If you've never tithed, the Bible talks about this practice of tithing. Not a legalistic thing, but the idea is to give the first 10% of your income directly to God. If you've never done that, I, I encourage you to start. You can go online at menlo.church, and we actually do this, what we call the tithe challenge. For people that haven't tithed, go online, sign up for that, take 90 days. First 10% of your income to God, if at the end of that 90 days, God is not clearly involved in your spiritual life, you're not able to responsibly sustain tithing, we will return to you the money that you gave during those 90 days, no questions asked, and rejoice with you that you took that one step towards God. And tons of people have done that and begun a whole adventure in generosity. And I know, I know, I know, I know, so many of you are so generous and you know the blessings of giving better than anybody. And if you're not there, you can start this day. I, I just think about this rich young ruler. When he got to the end of his life, it had been uh, respectable and affluent and comfortable and admired. But he missed everything. Just one more thing. If you live a life of surrendered generosity to God, and I know we live in an area that will not call you to this, but Jesus does. It is not just what you will give. You will receive the joy of helping others. You will receive the wonder of God being involved in your financial life so that you can give more. You will grow less selfish. You will become more grateful. You will be freed to follow Jesus. Other people will be glad that you are on the planet. They will tell stories about you. When you get to the end of your life, instead of a pile of regret and rust and ashes, you'll have a pile of rich earthly memories that you would not trade for the world. And just one more thing, you will have treasure in heaven. Let's pray. 
God, thank you so much for your goodness to us. We live, God, in this place of extraordinary affluence. And I pray now some people listening to this message are really struggling financially. Don't have a job, don't have a home. I pray that you will provide for them. I pray that you will cause resources to flow into their lives and for them to be able to find good work and a good place to live. I think about somebody in great need that I talked to just earlier this morning. And then, God, for a whole lot of us, you know, we've got way more than we need. And it just has a way of kind of clutching onto our hearts. So I pray for me and for everybody listening to me, God, that we would hear the call, that we would fall to our knees, that we would seek to follow the one who, though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sakes. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God. We bless you. We surrender our wealth to you. We do this in Jesus' name.